I think if there is a common thread that runs through this garage is that every car has a story. And I think it's about the story. It's not just another one of those, but it's a car that won Le Mans or a car that has some distinctive history, whether it's owned by Clark Gable or the first Corvette. I like the story. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. And as I record this here in Southern California, we're having one of the few days of the year where driving is one of the last things you want to be doing. The roads are a mess and we're getting a hard and steady rain and it's blustery and cold out. And honestly, I'm looking forward to a good book, a good whiskey in front of the fireplace and a good night's sleep. But whatever the weather is where you happen to be, I've got a story or an interview that'll keep you entertained, so don't forget to follow the show, leave me five stars and a quick review, and let your friends know about Horsepower Heritage as well. All right, well, today I've got a special encore edition of an interview with one of my favorite guests, Bruce Meyer. It's what you might call a best-of cut from an earlier episode. Bruce's best takes on his car passions and his thoughts on everything from Le Mans to Bonneville. So if you're new to the show or you missed it the first time, then you'll enjoy this one. There's also a full video version of this available, so if you want to see the cars that we're talking about, just click the link in the show notes and that'll take you over to my YouTube channel. Bruce Meyer is a successful entrepreneur and real estate investor, and he's been car crazy since he was a kid. Over the last 50 years, he's assembled a world-class collection of cars and motorcycles. He was the founding chairman of the Peterson Automotive Museum in Los Angeles, and the man who first brought hot rods to the Pebble Beach Concours. And they've been a fixture there ever since. From historic Corvettes and Ferraris to friends like Carol Shelby and Steve McQueen, he's what you might call a super fan. A car guy through and through. So we'll get into all of it, coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. No matter what's in your garage, you can fit all your automotive heroes on a shelf. And they've got you covered, whether it's 143rd scale, 118th scale, or even the ginormous 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. Go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and get 10% off when you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout. Limitations apply. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now, an encore with the one and only Bruce Meyer. Right here on Horsepower Heritage. Bruce, thanks for having us in today. The place is amazing. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, Maurice, because we've been uh, meeting at car shows all over and that's right. You have that great mustache, you're easy to identify, and I love your enthusiasm, so it's a pleasure to have you here. Why do you think we care so much about these cars? What, what is it? I mean, out of all the things that you can spend your time and money on. Well, for me, and I'm just guessing for yourself, it's part of your DNA, your genetic makeup. I mean, I have loved cars from my very first breath on earth, okay? Cars and motorcycles. And I think what drew me to them at the beginning was the idea of, of getting something that was powerful and would take me for a ride, you know? Sure. You could drive yourself rather than pedaling a bicycle and so forth. So, 
So I've always loved cars, and as a young person, you always like to go fast. And I just think it's, it's something you can't take out of me. I, I have three children, and it took on one of them, and he's as car crazy as I am. So I think it starts with the love of, of being transported fast and fun. And then as, as you uh, begin to experience more of the hobby and meet more of the people, because it's all about the people, you realize how important some of these cars are and how historic some of them are. Right. And what was your first car? My first car that, that I had some ownership in was a 1950 Plymouth, which was in 1958, which wasn't cool. My great aunt willed it to my sister, my sister and I. And uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't anything I dreamt about or really wished for, but it was... It, it was, was a set of wheels. It was a set of wheels, and it was available. And, and my parents were, were, were not car people. I mean, and that's being polite. I mean, you know, they, they, there was no bigger waste of time than foolishly spending your time on cars or <laughs> mechanical devices of any kind. You know, just work hard, save your money, and, you know, that type of thing. But when I went to college, you go through orientation. And um, my dad had given me the tuition money, but I, I visited the college tuition loan desk, and they said, no, we, we'll... We'll loan you the money for your tuition, interest-free, as long as you pay it back by the end of the school year. I said, I'll take one of those, you know. Well, I already had the money, so I, I spent the money, I bought a 50 Merc. So that was the first car that I kind of decided for myself, you know. Was it a lead sled? It was, it was a black coupe, which was fortunate. And the first thing I did is I torched the front springs, drop it down in front. And I drove it for probably six months of the school year sold it to a fraternity brother and paid the loan off and off I went. But the first car that I really, really did some homework on and, and first new car that I ever had was a Porsche. Uh, in 1961, I, it was a 61 model. I bought it in 1960 from the local dealer in Hollywood, Competition Motors. So John Von Neumann. John Von Neumann. Up until the time I, I ordered the Porsche, I, I was looking at uh, Chevrolets with big engines and four speed. So I, I was going to order a, the cheapest body style because I knew I could get that by my dad and with the biggest engine I could in a four speed. So that's kind of what I was eyeing for. And then, um, so that was like in 1960, we were going to do that deal. And then I kind of have been eyeing these Porsche cars running around. They intrigued me. I loved the look of them. I was following racing a little bit. And I thought, you know, that might be an interesting option. So I looked into it, went up to see John Von Neumann, got all the brochures, and I, I, I actually took European delivery. Um, I, I took a year out of school and went around the world. So uh, picking up the Porsche was like a really big thing. So I picked that up in 1961 in Stuttgart. Wow. I, I, it was my red period. So I had Signal Red, which is the brightest red they made. Right. And black interior, chrome wheels, because I love chrome wheels. No options, no radio, nothing. Small engine, no sunroof. But all you needed. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, so I was a Porsche owner in 1961. But so I, well, you go to the factory, and you announce that you're there, and they have the, it wasn't like they have it in a special place and they do a whole hoopla, but they had a, somebody deliver the car to me, and then they had a, one of the employees came out and gave me a, lesson on driving the car and what to do and what not to do and 
off I went. And I That's drove great. it around Europe a bit and shipped it home and had the car for from 61 to 64. And meanwhile, back here in Los Angeles, Southern California, that, those early 60s, that was quite a time for the car scene. So I was talking to a friend of mine, and we decided that, that he and I are the same age, that we grew up in the best time in the history of the world. <laughs> I mean that. I mean, I, the, six, the car culture in the 50s and 60s was amazing. I, I grew up in Hollywood. Um, so the drive-in circuit, Hollywood Boulevard, you know, we'd cruised every Saturday night. That was just like what we did. I turned 16 in uh, 1957. So from 57 to like, you know, 70, I mean, this was amazing. I mean, there were, if you wanted to race sports cars you could you could just literally tape over the headlights and go racing you if you wanted to go drag racing you, they, there was a class for everything yeah plus there was lions drag strip ascot park right uh orange ascot was it oh yeah yeah ascot was the roundy round right right and motorcycles and stuff right. so you're right drag racing you had irwindale and san fernando and lions and santa Ana. you had just a you could go drag racing any weekend you wanted to and Ascot was great. I didn't grow up circle racing so much with jalopies, you know, sure. that kind of stuff. And I didn't, I didn't really have the, the, the discretionary money to do anything on a high level. Everything I did was pretty low level. <laughs> <laughs> You've clearly corrected that, right? <laughs> We've well, got some of the most valuable cars here in, in your collection. And I, I know you don't like to call yourself a collector. You like to call yourself an enthusiast. And the collecting just naturally follows that passion. But So you're out of college, finished with school at Berkeley, and now you've got your life ahead of you, and you need to decide what to do. Did you have any doubts as a young man? What am I going to do with my life? You know, it's so funny because um, just recently I was talking to my friend. We, were just, we, were, we go way back. And I think if I had any fear, it was the fear of failure. You know, I... I, I I just didn't want to disappoint my parents. I, I, if there's any credit due anybody for my success is having a, a mother and father that I had. I mean, I, I would never be who I am today without them. Uh, because they kept me guided and working hard. And if it was up to me, I'd be, you know, racing motorcycles somewhere. I mean, they, 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 <laughs> They really gave me great guidance and a good sense of value. And um, funny you should mention that, because I was trying to think the other day, you know, kind of where I am and why I am, and I think that fear of failure had a lot to do with yeah. guiding me. And I never had any ask. If some, I mean, the idea of being a wealthy person never was, a, it, that was never an aspiration for me. To, to have a lot of money, and that never, that never drove me. I, I, I just um, tried to do the right thing and followed, you know, my own, you know, with the car thing. My, what you're looking at here is 50 years of one car at a time. Right. And, and uh, I'm, I've tried to be very select on what I buy. I try and buy the absolute best example I can of whatever it is. Cry once, right? Yeah, I say, yeah, that's right. 
buy the best and cry only once. Yeah. And, and uh, it's the truth. That's been my guiding star. I, I really, a, a friend came in here the other day and said, you, you just had to steal all these cars, you know. You know, you're in them for nothing. I said, I looked around, there isn't a car in here that I paid under retail for. And, and most of the time I paid a premium to have that car. So um, I've just tried to buy the best example. Well, the story that I love is uh, the sealed bid you did on uh, the Tessarossa, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a car that I'd been chasing for, well, John von Neumann, was, he sold me my first car. He was also a customer of our store. So I knew John von Neumann. I'd always admired him, and I remember looking through historical pictures of von Neumann, and uh, he had this Testarossa, and it was called Johnny von Neumann's Hot Rod. Now, at the time, it wasn't like a GTO or something like uber expensive thing that I'd have to sell every last thing I own. You know, it, it just seemed like, a, like something I could maybe afford. So. In our hobby, there's guys that can go out and find anything. So I had the two big car finders looking for me. Uh, and one of them uh, came back to me and said, that car, you'll never get that car. I said, why is that? He said, the car, that car, had been uh, impounded by Interpol. You know, that's the, like... International Police Organization. Exactly. Yeah. And then it was going nowhere. It, it had belonged to a, uh, a famous drug dealer and they had seized all of his cars and it's in the Hague impounded so I thought well that's enough of that well uh, you know fast forward a year or two and I am on my way to Goodwood and this friend of mine calls me and said you know I think that Testarossa you're looking at is going to go for sealed bid auction now I'd never been on a sealed bid auction because you don't know where to start you know you don't know if it go low or high you know and they said you have to have a letter of credit or or a certified check in an envelope to, to bid on the car. I'm going, holy cow, I'll never, I mean, there's no way I can put that together. So I called this friend of mine who had great banking relationships and um, Chip Connor, who's a well-known collector. I said, Chip, you gotta help me. I need a letter of credit for X amount. And can you connect me with your bank? I promise you I'm good for it, I'll take care of it. So <laughs> Chip made one call, done, deal. So I go dancing across the ocean with my letter of credit and I hired an attorney who was well known for car transactions. And I said, this is what I want to do. He said, no, I'm happy to handle it for you. So I, I put in my first bid like on Thursday when I got there, something like that. And I put in a bid that I thought was, if I can get it for this, I'm going to be really happy. And I'm thinking nobody knows about this, you know, because I didn't know about it. And I thought I knew where, what was happening globally. And I get to Goodwood, everybody's talking about this auction in, in the Hague, you know, all these cars, well, holy cow, you know, so people do know about it. So I called the attorney and I said, um, we better raise my bid, you know, raise it to, you know, a little higher, because I, I just, I don't want to miss this car. And that was on Friday, and they were opening the envelopes Saturday. Well, I, one thing, I get worked up, really excited, you know, and I didn't sleep at all Friday night. I thought, if I miss this car, I'm going to be so unhappy. So I called the attorney, Early Saturday morning, I said, just bid the whole letter of credit. If I don't get it, then I can't afford it, and sure. that's it. You know, I, I gave it a good try. Exactly. I still wouldn't have been happy if I missed it. But 
So the next morning, Friday at noon, on the windshield wiper of the Corvette, is a little, it's his business card. He said, you won, the, you won the car. So I won the car. So now I'm thinking, I wonder who was the underbidder. You know, how foolish did I go? And within like an hour or two, uh, one of the fellows from Symbolic, which was a big Ferrari dealer at the time, came up and he said, we were the underbidder on that Testarossa. I said, you were? I, I said, how do you know what I bid? He said, oh, no, it's published, you know. I really. I said, well, how far under were you, you know? And he told me, and it was just, you know, a very f small part of the price. And I thought, right. well, I, I just l lucked out. So, anyways, that's the story of that car. And that car has the most extensive competition history of any Ferrari that's on the books, right? Yep. It didn't win any, like, Targa Florio or Le Mans or Nürburgring. It was... A car, John von Neumann was kind of the champion of, of the West Coast and Mexico. I think he raced that car at Nassau one time. But it won, I think the first year it won like 50 races. It was, it was the most winning Ferrari. And when Ferrari celebrated their 70th anniversary, they, claimed, they did a video on that car as being the most winning Ferrari ever. So I guess it's won more races than any other Ferrari. But... You know, not the great races, but a lot of wins, you know, P1s. Well, Bruce, how about, how about some racing heroes? Because I know you're really passionate about racing history, and, you know, you've had some really fantastic drivers as personal friends. Who, who are some of the heroes? That's a good question. Um, I grew up, my first hero was Parnelli Jones, because he was on Channel 5, the Jalopy Derby. And so the first guy I cheered for was Parnelli Jones. So he, he is probably the first guy I even knew was a race driver that knew the name of Parnelli Jones. And then as I got older, you know, you, you, you kind of learn more and broaden your, your view from jalopy racing. And I guess Dan Gurney would set as high a bar as you could. I mean, there was a gentleman, raced everything, did it all in a first-class manner, a patriot, uh, and turned out to be a, a very good friend. And I'm still his widow, Evie, and Justin and Alex are still really good friends. So I, I think that just knowing the Gurneys has been a real treat for me. And so I would say Parnelli, then the Gurneys for sure, and then it would go drop down quite a ways from there. <laughs> All right, Bruce, I have to ask you about another guy that you knew who has become this mythical creature, Steve McQueen. He is now on this pedestal, and I just want to know about the guy, the, the real guy. Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting because he is a special guy, and still to this day, and right next to me is Clark Gable's Mercedes. And Clark Gable was the king and was the guy. And, and uh, most of my son's friends have no idea who Clark Gable was. To me, he was like the most important actor in the world, you know. Sure. And now McQueen, who's since passed, is still like revered for all the right reasons. I mean, he was the king of cool. Yep. And when I was growing up, I, I, I raced motorcycles. And there was always the McQueen, Bud Eakins, Dave Eakins, you know, Malcolm Smith. They were all the, like the really good, good riders, you know. And I was 
way back in the pack. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I, they, they hung out. They were always nice to everybody. It wasn't like they were. They didn't want to socialize her. So I, my, my recollection of Steve was very much a man's man. Of course, the women loved him. I mean, he, he loved his beers, and he loved his bikes, and he loves his cars. Mm-hmm. And, and um, always very friendly to me. Uh, I owned one of his cars, and I sold it back to him with the idea that thinking he's going to sell it right away and I'll get it back. We made an agreement. If he sold it, it would come back to me. It was a Porsche, right? Yeah, a little Porsche Speedster. I'd owned a car for, oh gosh, probably 12, 14 years, maybe longer. And I loved the car. And he heard that I had it. He approached me and he said, oh, it's probably not my car, but I'd love to see what you have. And so I said, sure. So I showed it to him. And by the way, when I got it, I, I paid $1,500 for this car. And the fellow that sold it to me, as we were just kind of concluding the deal, he said, this, this used to belong to Steve McQueen. I go, oh, cool. It didn't mean anything. I wouldn't have paid him anymore. And I think he was making Half Gun Will Travel or some, you know, it was a, he was a TV star. Yeah. Didn't matter. And then as time went on, it started to matter. I, ne- I didn't, like, think well, this was Steve McQueen's car, but it was cool. And so he called me and said he'd like to see the car. He was pretty sure it wasn't his car, but he'd love to see it. And I said, sure. So... My wife, who loves movie stars, she would, went out with me. We met in Westwood because at the time he was living in Malibu. Right. And, and we met in Westwood, and, and his eyes just lit up when he saw this car. And uh, he gets out of his car and just, like, runs for it, you know. And he, he, he starts, like, tearing into me. literally tore the glued-down carpeting off the back so he could see if the roll bar mounting was still there. Wow. And then he checked the front spare tire and it was a racing recap he, oh my god this is my car you got to sell it to me well this was the, i hadn't i didn't want to sell it but after about three months of his calling every week begging me to sell the car i thought you know what i can probably do without it and he really wants it and i'll do him a favor and hopefully it'll come back to me in some way someday and so i sold him the car and then probably three four five years later he dies and then uh, Chad has the car now, and I'm happy Chad does because I mean that's a, it's a meaningful car that it was Steve's first Porsche that he bought brand new and raced it. It's a family heirloom. Oh yeah, it's in the right place. I would sure love to have it sitting right where we are, but yeah, it's in the right place. Yeah. Now you've called Le Mans, the Super Bowl, World Cup, World Series all rolled into one, right in the automotive world. And I know you've been to Le Mans a number of times, and you own uh, cars that raced there and won their class. It's everything. It is everything you just said. It's the World Club. It's the Olympic Games. It's everything. And, and I think if you ask any racer what's the most important motorsport race in the world, other than maybe a, an Indianapolis you know, guy, and I used to think Indianapolis was pretty important, and I had a winner from Indy, but it was important to building the brand of Bentley because they won it so many times. Porsche's in there to win it because, you know, that they say win on Sunday, sell on Monday. That's right. I have the, the 1960 Corvette, which was the first Corvette to race at Le Mans. Briggs Cunningham put in three cars. But it's everything to the driver and to the automobile manufacturer. It's everything. And it's so important. And, and I would say maybe, oh, 20 years ago, I started 
figuring out this Lamar thing, and this is really important. I bought my first winner. Uh, it was a Ferrari from '61. The short wheelbase. The short Berlin wheelbase Atta. Berlin Atta. That was my 60th birthday present to myself. Yeah. I really that was a big stretch. And and then since then we've put together five winners, and they're really important to me and and to history. And you know, right right behind me is the Corvette that won in '09. Very important Corvette. Um, so, if there's any theme through here, other than the fact that I bought them one at a time over so many years, it's Le Mans. You know, we have probably focused more on that than anything else. I think if there is a common thread that runs through this garage, is that every car has a story. Yeah. And I think it's about the story. It's not just another one of those, but it's a car that won Le Mans or a car that had, has some distinctive history, whether it's owned by Clark Gable or the first Corvette. I like the story, and that's what I, I've tried to stick with that. With the Duesenberg we have, it's a one-off built for Colonel McCormick. So it's, it's not just another Duesenberg or another RS, it's a RSH, you know. And you have production Shelby Cobra number one sitting over there. Right, and I've been a Cobra guy since 1965. I, I've never been without a Cobra. I think if I, of all the cars I've ever owned, my favorite is a Cobra. And, and that's just like you say, it's not just a Cobra. It's the very first one, serial number one, which really meant a lot to me. I mean, I've had other Cobras and I've sold them just because that's the one. Was Carol Shelby a friend? Yeah, Carol Shelby was a good friend. Um, I actually met Carol Shelby through Robert E. Peterson, the Peterson Museum. And Robert E. Peterson, and most people know, he was the publisher and the creator of Hot Rod Magazine. So if there was any publication or printed matter that influenced me, it was Hot Rod Magazine. I, I mean, I poured over that magazine, and I, I think that's one of the biggest influences of my automotive life was Hot Rod Magazine. And, and also Hot Rods in general, whether it's the Scarab. Lance Reventlow. Lance Reventlow Scarab or, or the uh, Cobra or even the Corvettes. These were all created by Hot Rodders. Yeah. People do not give Hot Rods or Hot Rodders the credit they deserve. These young men came out of World War II with all this new technology from the war and they put it to work building hot rods and Bonneville cars and racers and Jim Hall, the chaparral. So these were all hot rodders. Hot rodders were the genesis of every cool, fast race car from like the 40s to the 70s, really. All hot rodders, at least out of this country. In England, they, they came from the war, but they didn't really have hot rods like as we know hot rods. So hot rods are really important to me. And by the way, can I just mention that you deserve a lot of credit for getting hot rods on the lawn at Pebble, right? That was, yeah. a, that was a long slog, but you did oh, it. Oh my God. So, so yeah, um, for t it was a 10-year beg fest. I mean, I, 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 for 10 years, I lobbied the, the producers of Pebble Beach to bring in hot rods. How important they were. Every article, Phil Hill was a hot rodder. Dan Gurney was a hot rodder. These were all hot rodders. 
And I sent them every article that came out that referenced any credible person to Hot Rods. I would send it to Lauren Tryon and, and uh, Jules Human. Finally, I just broke them down. After 10 years, I still have the facts. It was like, Bruce, are you sitting down? Okay, this was, in 19, this was Christmas of 1996. For one year only, we're going to do Hot Rods. And like, don't ever ask us again, okay? They put us at the very far end of the show field. I mean, any further, we would have been in the water in the bay. <laughs> and what was really fun is if you looked over the whole show field, which you could do from the lodge, everybody was down by the hot rodders. Everybody was relating to the hot It was a massive success. And you know, hot rodders are as talented and have the same eye as some of the best coach builders in history. I, I agree 100%. And they know how to make things work and go fast. And they're, they're craftsmen, they're welders, fabricators, great eye for design. Because there's some hot rods that just stand out or just, you know, mouth-watering. And others just miss. So there's great designs in hot rods. And there's no right or wrong. Hot rodders in general, whether you pull up in a 27 or 28, 29, 30, 32, it doesn't matter. They're just happy to see you and happy that you're enjoying the hobby. It's the, it's the most welcoming group of hobbyists. And so, so anyways, i just going back to, to Robert E. Peterson, you know. So, yeah. so Peterson was a neighbor of mine. We belonged to this group called YPO, Young Presidents Organization. So we were in that together. And, and then, um, and Peterson loved planes and fishing and hunting were really his passions. But he found this old building in, the, in L.A., it was a department store that was just a derelict and Peterson always liked opportunistic buys so he thought it was a really good deal so he basically bought the building and said Bruce this being a great car museum so you know I was kind of the, the front man I was I guess they, they call the founding chairman I chaired it for the first 10 years and I've put the last 25 30 years of my life into that place and it's never been better we have an amazing talented executive group there led by Terry Cargus and Michael Bodell and his whole crew museum has never been better we're in the black we have a huge endowment and great plans for the future so the Peterson Museum is stands on its own as being the finest car museum in the world I just have to put that pitch in there. I don't know what, I forget what your question well, was. Well no, I mean I'm glad you mentioned that because I was actually going to ask you about it because when when I you know my first visit to the Peterson was somewhere in I want to say ninety nine two thousand, mm -hmm. but you've taken it in recent years from a place where the the setups were kind of a a little bit of a diorama style right, which you can see just about at any car museum, and today it is world class rotating and curated amazingly well. I mean, well, thank you, Maurice, and and. We redid it, you know, about 10 years ago. When we first started the museum, we, were, we partnered with the Natural History Museum. And if you go to the Natural History Museum, dioramas are a big part of their exhibitions. They'll show a dinosaur or some long-toothed lion saber cat. or some saber cat, and they build a diorama as it was. And we did that with our cars. But we also found out that people that visited the Peterson and saw the American underslung stuck in the mud or our gas station. They'd seen it once. There was no reason to really go back. Right. So we found out that 70% of our visitors were first-timers. 
And, and that seems cool because we're drawing 70, but it's not what you want. You want it the other way around. You want 70% of the people to come be return visitors. Right. And so we did away with the dioramas. We have state-of-the-art exhibits. We, have, we can do surround sound, surround videos. We just opened an exhibit of Andy Warhol, who is maybe one of the top contemporary artists of all time. Sure. And he did a suite of cars, Mercedes cars, that are priceless. Mercedes sent us over the cars and the original art. There isn't a museum in the world that wouldn't give anything for this exhibit, any art museum in the world. So we, we have world-class art exhibits. We have a James Bond exhibit there now, supercars, hypercars. It's, it's just an awesome place, and it's doing really, really well. And it's all because of Robert E. Peterson, Hot Rod Magazine, you know, his success. He, we would never be there without him. What's been your favorite drive? Whether it's, uh, and, and this, this goes with, you know, the car and the venue. Because I know you've, you've been to Goodwood, you've done the Mille Emilia. Uh. So that's a really good question because every car in here is such a distinctive personality on the road. You know, the Bentley behind us, we've toured Europe in it. We did a rally from Budapest to Prague in the Cobra. The Duesenberg is just a big, you know, honking 400 horsepower truck and the Porsche 935 800 horsepower it, you better be pointed laser straight or it's gonna swap ends on you but my favorite ride is Bonneville you know um, growing up as a hot rodder I always wanted to race a car at Bonneville and and, and uh, I raced a 83 Camaro I went 224 in that but then I wanted to race in an open car, a hot rod. So we built a roadster, and I wanted to go over 200, and we accomplished that. So that 200-mile-an-hour ride, to me, was the ride of my life. I can't think of anything that was more exciting and more fulfilling than going over 200 in an open car. So I, I would have to say the roadster ride at Bonneville tops them all. Well, now, you're going down the salt at 200 miles an hour. You got a lot of wind buffet. Anything could happen. Where, where was your focus at that point? Was it, were you just thinking, I got to keep this thing straight? You definitely have to keep it straight. That's number one in your mind. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I raced motorcycles when I was younger. My parents didn't even know I owned a motorcycle because I, I that was my life that they didn't know about. And and because uh, I could keep motorcycles when I was in college, of course, they wouldn't know. And I could, when I was younger, in my teens, I had motorcycles, and I kept them in friends' garages. But in, like, the early 60s, I started racing motorcycles. And, and I'd think all week before the racing, I really shouldn't be doing this. If I get hurt, you know, my parents are just, oh, they would be so disappointed, you know. And, and then come the weekend, you put that helmet on, that, the last thing you're thinking about is your parents, you know. You're just, your eyes are like this, you just want to go for it, you know. And, and so when you're at Bonneville, I think most of all you want to be safe and you want to keep the car going straight. And, and a lot, there's a lot, it seems like, oh, this is simple, you know, straight line, anybody can do this. Well, 
it's like doing a wheelie for three miles. You know, you got to, you, you don't want to, first of all, you, that, that roadster has like 800 horsepower, maybe, maybe 900. So the, at any time, you, you know, the, the rear wheels could start spinning. And, and, and the rear wheels want to pass the front wheels. So if you're not going straight, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come about on you. So it's, it's, it, there's an art to going straight, and there's an art to going over 200, and that's just the most memorable ride of my life. And then I joined the 200-mile-an-hour club, which was just something I, I still can't believe that I'm in that. I, I'm so proud to wear that red hat. You know, that, that brings me to uh, your motto, which is, never lift and I know you got that from Parnelli Jones um, and when I hear that what I think of is seize the day right do what you want in life because life is short is that is that pretty much why you've adopted that model you know it is um, it means more to me now that I'm older you realize the only thing the only thing you have in life is time and health and you take any one of those two ingredients out, it's over. And at any moment you have that you're healthy and you've got some time in front of you is a, is a good time. So I just, I just say keep focusing on the front, do what you like, never lift. And, and if you're lucky enough to have a profession that you enjoy, you never work a day in your life. And I've always, I've been so blessed. And I thank God literally every single day uh, for my many blessings. Absolutely. Well, you're known as the nicest guy in the car hobby, and it's really true. So, Bruce Meyer, thanks for having us in. It's been a real treat. Well, Maurice, it's, it's my pleasure, and you're a great champion of the hobby and the passion, and I, I'm, I'm honored to have you here. And I know we'll continue seeing one another at all the great events. Appreciate it. All right, brother. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage and you can throw a few bucks in the gas tank to support the show. Don't forget to leave me five stars, write a review and tell your friends because all of that helps me reach more gearheads like you. I'll see you back here on Wednesday, January 25th with the story of one of the greatest high performance internal combustion engines in history. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.